Our text today is verses one through three. The title, if you are writing down notes, the title is not sermon. The title is Paul's cover letter. Paul's cover letter. We'll be considering the first three verses, which say this, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, sorry, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. So by way of considering first Paul's background, Paul's background is where we kick off this book of Titus. Paul speaks about himself in verses one through three, giving this background, this explanation of who he is and why he's writing what he's writing. He talks about that before he addresses Titus. This makes up this introduction, which scholars have observed is the third longest of Paul's introductions in Pauline literature. Uh, some of the others, I think, Romans and possibly First Corinthians, if I remember right. But this is a fairly lengthy introduction. He says all these things in the three verses before he gets to the words in verse 4 that say to Titus. So that's why we are considering Paul, his cover letter, his background, his explanation of himself in these verses. Now, we're not going to do a Bible-wide theology of Paul today. Uh, There is, unfortunately, a a version of preaching that is often called expository preaching, but it's not really preaching that text. It's preaching something from the Bible that is found in that text, but it's really doing a Bible-wide theology, and that's not what we're trying to do, because if we tried to do that, it would take two years to get through the book of Titus, as it would take to get through any book, no matter how short. We want to consider what this text says about Paul. Yes, we'll cross-reference a few other things, but we're not doing a deep dive into all that could be said about Paul, because when you do that, anytime you see the name Paul, you have an identical sermon. So we want to preach what this text says about Paul in today's message. So that leads us to point number one. We have a slide for this. Point number one says Paul's identity and ours. Paul's identity and ours. We also have the scripture for this. Paul a bondservant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Under this, point A, Paul is coming from the place of being a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee. There is much that could be said. Right now I'm about to do what I just said I wouldn't do, and that is considering other texts talking about Paul. Philippians 3, verse 4 through 11 says, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I may, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul's giving his theological and spiritual resume. He's saying, look, I was really good. I had it together. I was the most spiritual of the most spiritual of all the Jews. Verse 7 says, but what things were gained to me, These I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, 
by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, be conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The first subpoint is Paul himself. Paul is coming into this as a former Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee, who has met Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, have you found Jesus? Has Jesus found you? Have you given up your old life, your old identity, the old man, in exchange for the person of Jesus Christ? You see, Paul's old way of life was all about these laws, all about these commandments, all about these rituals and things. But he says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Ultimately, his whole identity, his whole old identity and old nature was bound up in a system of works righteousness. A system of rule-keeping, law-keeping. Hey, if I just do enough of these things, then I will be right with God and I'll be the most right with God. I will be the super spiritual person that then goes around and persecutes everyone else. But he counted those things as loss for Christ. You see, you can't have works righteousness and the righteousness of Christ at the same time. You can't have both salvation by your efforts, your works, your righteousness, and salvation by the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to you. When you're trusting in yourself, you're not trusting in Jesus. Subpoint one, Paul. Subpoint two, a bondservant of God. Your ESV probably says a servant of God. In Greek, it's the word doulos, word often translated slave. This particular expression is very rare and is found only here to describe Paul. And by that, I mean Paul, a slave of God. He's called a servant of, or a slave or servant of Jesus or Jesus Christ but in Romans and Philippians and in other, other places. But the expression, a servant or a slave of God, is unique to this particular text. Some scholars believe that is an intentional reference to the Old Testament, referring to David and Moses and others who were described as servants of God. What is ultimately a slave of God? Well, what is a slave? A slave is a person who's owned by someone else. And they do whatever they're told to do. They don't have their own agenda for the day. They have their owner's agenda for the day. They don't just work nine to five either. They don't get to say, hey, uh, boss, it's 501. Uh, I've got dinner plans. I need to head out. Hey, boss, it's 505. I'm still here. No, none of that stuff matters. A slave's agenda doesn't matter. A slave's will doesn't matter. It's the owner's will and agenda that matters. 
after we have trusted in Christ, part of our growth in Christ is recognizing who God has called us to be. What God has said about us. We have many, many words that are used to describe believers. Terms related to salvation, terms related to sanctification, all these types of things. For example, the the doctrine of adoption. You You might not know that you're adopted into the family of God the moment you become a Christian, but you are. And then you learn that as things go on. You might not understand this idea of being a servant of God or a slave of God, but that is something that you grow into over the course of your Christian life. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, on the basis of the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm a slave of God. What God wants goes in my life. We don't have a debate whenever the will and word of God comes up against my agenda. Rather, we say, no, you're in charge. The third sub-point, well, before we move on, I'll say, what about you? So we have Paul's identity and ours. Have you come to that place? where you recognize God's authority over every aspect of your life? Depending on what your church tradition is, your background, your theological tribe or whatever, some, some call it dedication, some call it lordship salvation. Some, there's a lot of different names that people call this, but I'm asking you today, do you recognize Jesus' ownership of you? Do you recognize his authority over every detail of your life? Or do you think that You give Jesus Sunday morning, and you get Monday through Saturday. That's not to say Monday through Saturday has to be one big worship service. Of course not. But that means that all that you do, you do for the glory of God. Your work, it's not complicated. You don't need a 12-week series about faith and work. It is doing your work as unto the Lord. Very simple. You work as a good worker for God as though God is your boss. If your boss tells you to do something that is sinful, illegal, unethical, you figure out some polite way to say no. But otherwise, you're working for your boss as though you're working for God. There are countless applications for this. But the the issue at its core is God owns you. He purchased you from the slave market of sin. That's the definition of the word redeemer. He's redeemed you out of slavery. You have left being a slave of sin to now being a slave of God. He owns you. He has authority over you. Now, our third sub-point is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul's identity, thirdly, is as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of this described in the book of Acts. Paul's testimony is told three times in the book of Acts. I'll let you read that on your own time. But Paul's identity as an apostle is so prominent. It's such a defining characteristic of him that in biblical literature, he's often just called the apostle. In Bible study books, 
Sometimes he'll be referred to as the apostle. There's a book titled The Apostle of the Heart Set Free. When you hear someone reference the apostle, you know they're talking about Paul. Unless they're from some crazy church. Paul's identity as an apostle is a dominant theme in his life, perhaps the dominant theme. What does it mean to be an apostle? Well, in his case, the 12 apostles, the the apostles of Jesus, are these ones that are specifically called by Jesus himself to go out and establish the church in the first century. There is a distinction to be made, though, between what is often called capital A apostles, these apostles that have the authority of Jesus to write scripture, for example, to raise the dead, to perform miracles and miraculous healings. That's very different from, an aside here, that's different from praying for someone to be healed. The apostles laid hands on and healed the person they laid hands on. The apostles had a certain power that was given to them by Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to perform great and mighty signs and wonders to verify their legitimacy as apostles. That was a unique thing to those people. Those apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. So in that sense, we don't have apostles like that today. If if some preacher calls himself an apostle, whatever, apostle Andy, apostle Trenton, whatever, anything like that, that's not legitimate. We don't have apostles today. But there is a legitimate sense in which there's a lowercase apostle. You see them in the Bible. Apostles that don't have that same authority. They don't have that same power. Well, what were they? What is an apostle in that sense? That second sense, what is called the lowercase a sense. Well, an apostle in that sense is one who is sent. A sent one. A missionary. God has given his great commission to every Christian. That doesn't mean that every Christian has to go in the same sense or the same way, but every Christian is given the great commission. Every Christian has a part to play in fulfilling the Great Commission. Whether that is being a dedicated prayer warrior who prays to an exceptional degree for the spread of the gospel, or one who has the gift of giving and they're able to give millions or billions of dollars to spread the gospel, or you're you're a broke preacher who can stand on a street corner and tell people about Jesus, there's all different types and many others of spiritual gifts that God has given to us for the sake of spreading the gospel and building up the church. And in this way, we are all called, we are all called to go and preach the gospel. God takes you as you are. Think of Paul coming from his background in Judaism God takes you as you are from wherever you are and he has a unique calling for you. There's a specific path that God has for each of us. We do not find it by searching for it. We find it by faithful plotting, by faithful obedience in the minutia, in the little things of life. And then you look back after 25 years and you see, wow, I guess that's what God had for me. 
We are slaves of God. His will is our command, and we are sent by Jesus in the power of the Spirit. This is point one, Paul's identity and ours. Point two, we can go to the next slide, Paul's purpose and ours. Our text for this is on the screen. It says, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. According to the faith of God's elect. The ESV says, for the sake of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Why is Paul doing what he's doing? That's the question that should be raised in your mind when you're reading this section of scripture. So Paul, why do you do what you do? I'm glad you asked. That's this point, point two, Paul's purpose. Paul's purpose is first, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Why does he do what he does? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. He doesn't shy away from the term elect either. He just puts it right there. It motivates and compels missions as it always has throughout church history. The doctrine of unconditional election is the greatest motivator for missions in Christian history. You're going because you know there is such thing as the elect. If there were no such thing as the elect, which God chose before the foundation of the world, there would be no point in missions because nobody would be saved. And if you think that they could be saved without being elect. You have a, an extremely high, uh, elevated view of man's intrinsic nature. You think that man is not as sinful as man is. The Bible says, no, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. God does, uh, Paul, Paul's purpose it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's, that motivates him to go on his missionary journeys, which are described in the book of Acts. You can read about them there. So Paul's second purpose, point two, is for the sake of their knowledge of the truth. He doesn't want you to, to merely be saved, though salvation is amazing. The grace of God is wonderful but he wants you to grow in your knowledge of the truth. That's why he does what he does. That's why he writes what he writes. That's why he sends Titus to go to Crete. It's for them to grow in their knowledge of the truth. The third purpose is for the sake of their sanctification, for their godliness, He's not giving them truth that they would grow in their knowledge that their heads would be big and inflated and, and filled up like a giant balloon. It is true that oftentimes knowledge puffs up. But that's not the purpose of Paul's teaching and that is not the purpose of any of our teaching. It is not to make you an arrogant know-it-all. Is not to make it so that you can smash your Arminian friends in arguments or even the unbelievers in your evangelism. That is not the point. The point is that you would grow in your sanctification. I 
Now, all of this has a particular motivation behind it, and that motivation is by their confident expectation in eternal life. The beginning, the first line of verse 2 says, in hope of eternal life. It's also referenced again in the um, chapter 2, verse 12, 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, this motivation, Paul's purpose is motivated by his confident expectation of eternal life. Hope is confident expectation. The purpose of eschatology is not to fill us with fear. It is not to cause us to have an overemphasis on current events. But rather, it is to fill us with hope. And that hope is this. Jesus is coming again. This is our blessed hope. It is not a blessed hope that we will come out on top, that we will conquer through our efforts with some Jesus help. No. It is not that we will come out on top, but rather that Jesus will reign victorious and he will reign victorious upon his return. He will, he will return and he will reign. We just covered this in Revelation. He comes back, he kills his enemies, he establishes his kingdom. Paul's purpose is motivated by this hope of eternal life. Now, our purpose today, what drives us is for the sake of God's elect. That's why we're here. At least that's why I'm here. That's why I'm in New York, paying an insane amount of money for rent. It's not like this in the rest of the country. What drives us is for the sake of God's elect. We don't know who they are, so we go out and we preach to anyone and everyone. Whoever we can find, whoever will listen to us, those are the ones that we preach to. And if they listen and if they believe, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we know that they are chosen by God because the the word of God comes to them in full power and conviction by the Holy Spirit, and so they believe. So that's how we know that these people are elect. That's how I know that you're elect if you're believing. So we go out for the sake of God's elect. Secondly, we go out for the sake of their knowledge of the truth. We are consumed with truth. There is such thing as truth, and it's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's truth. We don't modify that. We just say truth. We go for the sake of the knowledge of the truth. We're consumed with truth, and we're helping others know the truth. The world is is full of lies. But we can say with the Apostle John, and I think it's 3 John, uh, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The believer resonates with that. That they and others walk in truth. That fills them with such great joy. And the third application is we are motivated, we are driven, our purpose, for the sake of their sanctification. 
Remember where Paul said in Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, but I have doubts about you. He's laboring. If you've never seen a woman in labor, um, well, now that now I have, and I was like, wow, this is really vivid. <laughs> it's not easy. It's hard. It takes a long time. It's painful. That's, that's a picture that Paul uses in Galatians 4.19 to describe the process of Christ being formed in someone. We should not be surprised if that is hard, slow, painful, not easy. Hebrews 10.25 resonates with the same concept. Verse 24 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. What we're doing is helping others grow in sanctification. It's an active thing, not a passive thing. It's not something we sit back and just be like, Oh, well, I'm going to show up to church today, maybe. No, you remember this church, you are committed to actively pursuing not only your sanctification, but other sanctification. So you're going to think in advance of ways you can bless the people in your small group, for example. You know, you're, you're, you're reading a passage of scripture, Nancy does this a lot, you're reading some scripture and you're like, oh, this is good, let me share this with someone. And because as a member of the church, you're somewhat more committed and involved in the life of the church, you know other people in the church, so you know what they're going through. So when you're reading the scripture on your own time, and you see something that you know would bless someone else, you can then send it to them to help aid in their sanctification. This is just a very simple illustration, but there's endless ways to do this. Whether it's a sermon you're listening to, or a book that you came across. Or just looking around the room and seeing, that person seems discouraged today. Maybe I'll go up and talk to them and see if there's a way I can bless them. Maybe it's giving a student some coffee money. There's a lot of ways. There's endless ways. Writing a letter to someone who's away at college. Our involvement in the life of the church is not... Ultimately, for us, I'm doing a, a book club with uh, a few people in the church, and on Friday night we covered two chapters from it's this book by Sinclair Ferguson called "Devoted to God's Church." I talked to my dad about it this week, who I saw at a pastor's retreat, and I told him that I have this not so secret agenda, which is to, and he's like, "What? To help people be devoted to God's church?" And I said, "Yeah, that's it." Um, so we're reading. We we did two chapters this week because we missed one the week before. And there's this section on page 145 where uh, Ferguson basically says that God didn't give you the gifts he gave you for you. He gave them to you for others. And then I underlined as I was reading like, like every line on this one page because it was all just so good. So I'm going to read this because I thought it was particularly relevant for us. Willingness to serve is not to be confused with high levels of activity in the church. It has become a hallmark of church life today to flood the week with activities, sometimes to such a degree that it becomes impossible for the leaders of the church to find space for the central activities. No service, no, service is not the same as being active. 
Much activity can give our churches a real sense of buzz. That can be confused with, but is not the same as, a real measure of spiritual growth. Service has much more to do with caring and loving than it has to do with merely being busy. This was a challenge to me. I I wrote um, cards to many of the members at the two-year anniversary for this church, and you're, you're showing you a bit under the hood or behind the curtain here. And as I'm writing these things, I'm thinking about you as members of the church and trying to think of things to affirm, things to praise, things to say, hey, you know, I'm really excited about your service in the church. And I realized that maybe 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work, as it is in most churches. That doesn't mean 20% of the church is busy and active. No, there's lots of activities going on. But when it comes time to, hey, we need some people to clean the toilets, the crickets start chirping. And people are like, I have to go now. Activity is not the same as service. So subtle are our sinful hearts that we can be constantly busy, but in the process, doing little more than serving our own interests. The test, the person who is genuinely busy in the Lord's work cares nothing about whether they are noticed or not, and whether they gain position in the church or not. For Christ-like servants are always taken up with, or consumed with, the interests of others, not with their own. Our purpose, same with Paul's purpose, is for the sanctification of others. Are you actively engaged on a regular basis with thinking about how you can bless other people? In appropriate ways. There are ways that are appropriate, ways that are inappropriate, and if you're confused about that, talk to someone who's over the age of 55 and they can help you. Point three, Paul's power and ours. Paul's power and ours. Which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So we're doing these things. Paul's doing these things. How does he do them? How is this enabled? God cannot lie. This is one difference between the um, ESV and the New King James. I think it says, does not lie. New King James says, cannot lie. Which God who cannot lie promised before time began. God cannot lie. You know who does lie? The Cretans. He talks about it here in this book. He says the Cretans are lazy beasts, evil gluttons. They always lie. God doesn't lie. Cretans lie. People lie. God doesn't lie. People will tell blatant lies, lies that you know. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. And I'm having a hard time not laughing when you're telling me this lie because it's so clearly a lie. Think of like a real life version of when, uh, you know, the 10 of us that play Secret Hitler play Secret Hitler. And somebody's like, Andy, you're Hitler. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. (laughs) And you all know that I am, but I have to lie because that's the game. By the way, Luke, let's play Secret Hitler today if you can. Um, People lie. People tell blatant lies. People also tell half lies, you know, like a half lie, half truth thing. Or they, they distort the truth. You know the expression fishtails? Where, oh, I caught this fish, it was this big. No, it wasn't. Oh, I got hit 
we didn't really, kind of got bumped. People exaggerate. People also lie by conveniently leaving out important facts that people need to know. Leading others to think that things are certain ways when they're not. Romans 3 describes it like this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps or the poison of vipers is under their lips. One of the hallmarks of people by nature is that people lie. Sinners sin. People lie. By our nature, we are liars. That's why you don't have to teach children to lie. If you've ever worked with little kids and you're like, oh, did you take the cookie? And you see the crumbs on their face. You see the chocolate on their fingers and you say, did you take the cookie? And they say, no, I didn't. And you're like, it's still in your mouth. Like it's coming out of your mouth as you're saying, no, I didn't. You didn't have to teach that kid that strategy. He came up with it on his own. Where did it come from? His heart. Because that's how we are by nature. But God does not lie. That's a good spot to say amen. Let me say it again. God does not lie. I hate it when preachers ask for amens, and I just did it. Wow. (laughs) Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be true, but every man a liar. So what I'm talking about right now is Paul's power and ours. What is Paul doing? Paul is taking hold of the promises of God. That's how he's doing his life. That's how his mission goes forth. It is by the promises of God. And there's this one particular one he's identified here. And that is that God cannot lie. That is a powerful weapon for your warfare when you are going out into a ministry of a land or an island like Crete where people lie constantly. God doesn't lie. But what does that mean practically for us? That means we can trust his word. We can trust the Bible. That doesn't mean we can trust with the same authority people's interpretation of the Bible or people's subjective feeling about what God might want them to do. And we certainly can't trust when people say, well, God told me, and then they follow up with something not found in scripture. We don't trust that, but we trust God's word because God cannot lie. So that is this first weapon that that Paul has taken hold of, this particular promise of God, which is God cannot lie. But taking a step back and looking more at the forest rather than one individual tree, the promises of God, in general, the promises of God are a mighty weapon which we must take hold of if we are to be who God has called us to be. You're not going to grow the way God wants you to grow if you're not taking hold of the promises of God as a category. Your spiritual life, your spiritual growth depends to a very large degree on how much the promises of God have gripped you. Yeah, sure, you take hold of them, but it's much more them taking hold of you. There are many, many promises in the Bible. 
And hermeneutics are very important here. Herma what? Hermeneutics. That's a word that means biblical interpretation. If you're going to rightly understand the word, rightly understand the Bible, you need to understand a few things. For example, genre. What is the genre of this particular book? So it would be very helpful if each person, every Christian, whether they're here or anywhere, buys a good study Bible. Most of them are good. If it has some crazy title, it's probably not good. But anything that sounds like it was written by a reasonable, rational person is probably a good study Bible. So get a study Bible. That will help you understanding the genre. If you've been a Christian for more than a year or two, I expect you to know the genre already because it's fairly easy to figure out. What this means is that there are different types of literature in the Bible. For example, there's poetry. Poetry uses a lot of poetic metaphors. There are proverbs. Proverbs are general truths. Not promises, but general truths. There are epistles, letters. There are historical narratives. There's there's some other genres as well. But it's important to understand genre when you're reading scripture so that you don't misunderstand something that may be perhaps a, a proverb, but not a promise because we're talking about the promises of God here. So if you want to avoid falling into some traps, such as claiming promises which aren't promises, you got to understand genre first off. One famous example is uh, the verse that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That is not a promise. That is a proverb. It's a proverb. So that's the reason why you can have Bad kids who grow up in good homes and good kids who grow up in bad homes. It is a general truth that if you train a child a particular way, that's the way that that child is going to go. But that doesn't mean that's your fate. It doesn't mean you're locked into that. Because if you took it that way, you could think about the opposite. If you grew up in a bad home, that your parents trade you up in the way of sin and wickedness, and that's, that's, what you're, that's your lot in life because you're stuck in that because this is a promise of God. No, that's not, that's not the proper method of interpretation. Anyway, first is genre. Secondly, you need to understand biblical covenants. Biblical covenants. You need to both understand biblical covenants in the biblical theology sense, and then also systematic theology covenants as well, ideas like a covenant of redemption. Biblical covenants might be a covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with, with David the new covenant with Jeremiah. Those are the biblical covenants. And then you should also understand systematic theology covenants. For example, covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. And if you understand covenants, that is very helpful. It is vital to understand what kind of covenant the particular text of scripture is being written under the umbrella of. So if you understand what the terms of the agreement are that Paul is, or Paul or that Moses or whoever is writing, that helps you understand whether a promise is a promise, whether it's a promise for you or whether it's just a general thing. And then the third point I'll make here is that you need to keep in mind who God is speaking to in any given passage and be careful not to take passages out of context. 
That being said, God's statements about himself are firmly fixed and abiding. They are unchanging. Whether he is speaking that way to David or Isaiah or Jeremiah, God is the same God for them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God for us. God's character does not change. Now, there's a variety of promises of God that could be discussed here. I'll give you one or two. One of the most popular promises of God in the Bible is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's quoted in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, and there's an application in verse 6. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I will never leave you nor forsake you is a promise given to Joshua as he is going into the promised land under Moses' time period. But that promise is, is made available for you as well. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, if you want to do a deep dive into the particular language of that, you'll find that there are, I believe, six negatives, which are like a double negative makes a positive, and then it, it is emphatic. And so he's saying, I will never, absolutely never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. No way, no how. So if that idea takes hold of you, it actually changes your life. Like, it actually changes your anxiety level, tangibly. Another promise of God, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Not just all things work together for good, but he qualifies it. It's for those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. To whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that tells us the good that God has ordained all things, all things will work together for this good, and that that good is your sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness. When you understand the promises of God, you need to begin to interpret your circumstances in light of them, rather than interpreting the promises of God in light of your circumstances. This is an anchor for your soul. This is a ballast of assurance. This is something that gives you confidence. It steadies you. New Yorkers are notoriously unstable. That's why there's, that's why there's more therapists per capita in New York City and more people on drugs and antidepressants in New York than like anywhere else I've ever seen in my life. That's because people here aren't very stable. When these promises of God grip you and take hold of you, they, they help. I'm not telling you, I'm not making a false promise here and telling you you will never have problems again, you will never have anxiety, or that if you have anxiety that you know, you're a terrible person. I'm not saying that, because we know that many believers throughout history have had all sorts of fears. But I'm saying that it will change things when you begin to interpret your circumstances in light of the promises of God. And that's what Paul is doing here for Titus in this section. He's saying, God cannot lie. Our fourth point, we need to wrap this up quickly. Paul's method and ours. 
Paul's method and ours. It says, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. God has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching to save the lost. This word preaching comes from a Greek word, which means to herald, to proclaim. Think of a messenger in a medieval movie. That messenger comes with a letter from the king, and he gives that letter to the town crier. The town crier takes the letter to the city square, stands up on a box, and heralds the message. And it might go something like this. He might say, hear ye, hear ye, King Henry VIII hereby proclaims himself supreme head of the church. He also proclaims his marriage to Catherine of Aragon has ended, and he is free to remarry. He also proclaims that he is taking Anne Boleyn as his wife. That's all. You can go back to your work now. A herald's job is to proclaim the message. He's just here to deliver the mail. He's just a messenger. He's not the author of the message. He doesn't actually have intrinsic authority on his own. It's the message that bears authority, and the message bears authority because it comes from the king. So it is with us. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the, de- the debater, the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, both Jew and Gentile, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This was Paul's method. There's a book called St. Paul's Missionary Methods. This was Paul's method, preaching the gospel. And this is our method as well. Now, I'm not saying that each person needs to be a preacher by profession, by vocation, by job. But the same with the Great Commission, which is given to all people. We are all to proclaim the message of the gospel as heralds. We're not here to edit it. We're not here to rewrite it or to change it. We're just here to deliver it. And you can deliver that. Sure, you can do it by actually preaching, preaching. Or you can do it by speaking, by talking. By that conversation in the waiting room or the the chat with your cab driver. Paul's method, as well as our method, is that his word would be manifested through preaching. And Paul was given this. It was committed to Paul according to the commandment of God, our Savior. And this is Paul's cover letter. As Paul is speaking about himself and beginning this letter to Titus, Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its relevance to our lives. Thank you that we can see something of Paul's life and ministry. The example that he gave and said and commissioned to Titus and its impact for us as well. I pray that you would help us, that we would 
always lift up the name of Jesus, that we would proclaim Christ who lived, died, and rose again to save sinners, and that our hope is completely in him, not in any of our own doing, that we would do all that we do for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for their, their knowledge of the truth, for their growth in godliness, Lord, I pray that these things, that this heartbeat of Paul's would be our heartbeat and that we would go and tell others that we would do this being sent by you as servants of God, not with our own agendas, but with your agenda. Lord, I pray that you would make us a humble people, proclaiming your word wherever we are able. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.